in the house. Let me hear your bark. Let me see your bite. Let me see your scars. You know what we about. Come see us in the yard. Hello and welcome to All We Hear is Purple, or the third or fourth most mediocre Husky football podcast on the entire internet. Remember to subscribe and rate and review and all those things. And you know, I'm Andrew Berg, and I was thinking that we haven't talked about football in a while because there hasn't been football in a while, but we're getting pretty close to football. Might be a good time to talk about football. Are you up for that, Gaby? That, that would be ideal. It's a really bold uh, proposition, but... I think with enough heart, we can do it. <laughs> we are in, you know, for all uh, practical purposes, a football podcast. We diverted from that a little bit. We might do that again in the future. But now we actually have some football topics to talk about. That's where we differ from some football podcasts, uh, whereas uh, some of them just talk about football all the time. We kind of wait until we have something to say about football uh, or at least try to do that. Yeah, so- I really like to avoid like, if there's nothing to talk about, I'm okay to be silent for like two months. I'm sure yeah. everyone else loves that too. I mean, I, I enjoy the silence in general. Mm-hmm. Also, I'm lazy. Let's start with talking about the depth chart as it stands now, because there's going to be a football game in about a month. Uh, depending on when you listen to this, maybe less than a month from now, we'll actually see the Huskies on the field. We have a fairly uh, steady depth chart because so many players are back, but there are still a few interesting uh, places to figure out playing time. I, I think we could kind of start on offense in the offensive backfield. Uh, we have, we had a job share at running back last year. Those guys are back. There are going to be guys pushing up behind them looking for more playing time. How do you think the running back uh, situation playing time carries uh, responsibilities is likely to shake out? Um, yeah, I think, I think, I think it's probably going to be kind of more of, uh, Newton McGrew. And then I think Cam Davis, I, I would be pretty surprised if Cam Davis doesn't get a pretty healthy dose of carries. Um, I, it kind of made sense to me last year with giving, or it, it, I should say it made sense within reason, uh, for Kamari Pleasant to be somewhat involved last year in as far as it wouldn't really make sense this year. Like, I don't think he's going to not see the field at all but like I would be pretty surprised if he has like extended series where you're seeing a lot of him unlike like we like we did last year um I think I think Cam Davis is clearly the most well-rounded um and then and then Newton and McGrew you know both have their specific uses where it does make sense to to rely on them when you need to um but yeah I, I I'd be pretty surprised if it's um, anything that looks significantly different than a, than a rotation of those three. Yeah. I think that makes sense. I, I, I think I probably would have said most of the th- same things last year uh, and pleasant still, I think led the team in carries or was very close to it, or maybe it was just in snaps, uh, which is strange. And it makes me a little bit nervous. It seems he's fine. He, he's, consistent he doesn't make big mistakes but he's one of the least explosive players and on the roster and this team is calling out for more explosion I think above all else there was kind of a baseline consistency there are very few big plays so maybe it's a little bit hope or maybe it's a little bit uh you know the rational 
recognizing what the needs are and adjusting for them. Or maybe it's a little bit of someone like Davis having a full year in the program, additionally, getting ready to come in this fall and, you know, have a little bit more maturity, a little bit more game action to push Pleasant for playing time. Uh, and then those other two, like you said, McGrew and, and Newton with more well-defined roles. But it would be pretty disappointing if just because the same players are back, we saw the same distribution of playing time because it doesn't seem like that would be ideal. Um, the offensive line is closely related to this discussion uh, and whoever runs is going to be highly dependent on them. It seems like most of the line is set or strong at the tackle positions. You know, Wattenberg is stalwart at center, even if he's not going to be the best player in the conference. The one question seems to be at, at right guard where MJ Ali was kind of up and down last year. Wait, is uh, it that left guard? At left guard. Sorry, I said yeah. right guard. Yeah. Get it right. Uh, at, at left guard. Is there, do you see any chance for somebody else to take that spot from him? on a regular basis or is it kind of kind of be wait and see through the year to see if he kind of yeah, develops the production to match his physical stature? Yeah. Um, I think, I think he's definitely the one where if there is a guy who I don't want to say is on the hot seat, but like if there's one guy who's most likely to be replaced, I think it's uh, definitely him. Um, although, you know, that it's not like he was some guy who'd been in the program for many, many years last year and was still disappointing. Like, you know, so there's still, it's not unreasonable to assume or not to assume it's unreasonable to assume he'll get better, but it's not unreasonable to think that's like easily within the realm of, within the realm of uh, reason. Um, I think what's interesting though, is that like, if you're looking at our offensive line group, um, and we've kind of talked about this in the writer's chat, like Mateo Mele is, I, I think, generally speaking, the sixth man up, but his he's been used uh, exclusively, I believe, at tackle and center. Um, and so I think it's interesting to think, not that like you can't then also play, not that that means like is mutually exclusive with also playing guard um, if needed. But um, so I think it would be interesting though, if, if Ale is pushed, like it's probably not going to be by the guy who is otherwise your next lineman up. So like, I, th I think probably Rosengarten is a, would be a decent uh, bet. Like if you're a gambler, um, but um, that, it, it, that's also just kind of similarly based on conjecture in the same or, or projection, whatever you want to call it in the same way that like, any improvement on Ale is based on conjecture. Um, so I don't think there's anything like evidence-based specifically within the program to be like, yeah, he's, he might like, he's definitely going to lose it, but like that's within the realm of possibility. And I think there's, there's a handful of guys from like the 2019 class um, or yeah, 2019 class or maybe 2020 who are probably the most likely um, suspects I would, I would imagine in that. Yeah. It's interesting too, because it seems like this coaching staff kind of has a, a, uh, range of sizes that they prefer at the different spots on the offensive line. And if you look at the guys who get playing time at each spot, you can kind of see how that breaks down. And the players who generally play at guard are three thirty plus, uh, which mm -hmm. is enormous, but that's just kind of the way that you know, like Nate Kaleppo and, and Julius Bulow, it seems like have been uh, 
uh, tagged to play those roles because they've been putting on weight since they came into the program. Some of the players who are seeming tracked for tackle have put on less weight or even lost weight. Um, Ali is a 365 pounds. I, I think he's the heaviest guy in the entire yeah. roster. Although they uh, actually updated it, they updated the roster weights like yesterday when we we're recording this, and now he's down to 355. You know, uh, is that still? I think. Well, point being, yeah, uh, like so Rose Garden's small, 285. That's a, yeah. a very significant difference. Yeah, he's and, definitely and, on the tackle track for yeah, sure. Yeah, and Melee at 290. So there's a pretty big difference between. Uh, those guys uh if if that's who would be next in line so maybe it is somebody like Kalepo, uh who who's next in line at you know 330 yeah. pounds that's to actually play a tackle or that's guard. actually a good point because i i like obviously if you had asked me like what's roger rosengarten in line quote unquote for lack of better words in line for i would like obviously say tackle um and and versus Nate Kalepo and Julius Bulow who despite being very very tall and long which you associate with tackle are look like they're on the, the Tim Soha path to being like immovable mountains at guard <laughs> um um so yeah I, but I think what's uh, interesting about them is is that they are like as we all knew when they were coming in like both of them were developmental were projects kind of honestly similar to Ale of like these two dudes that are freaks and now it's just a matter of, of uh you know who can who can be the best freak at that position so I think because they are circumstantially so similar to, to Ale albeit one year younger I'm it part of me is like it totally makes sense that they would be the ones to push him and then part of me feels like like I want to put the brakes on that just because it's like they're in the same position as he was, but also you're younger, but of course development is different for everybody. So, you know, who knows if, if, uh, if one of them simply on the basis of us having a bunch of massive human beings, uh, it's <laughs> probability wise, someone will be good. <laughs> yes. And, and you know, hopefully the, in the program long enough, the skills develop. Uh, let's talk about the receiving core too, because it's not a big group. Uh, we talked, I think last time we talked about football about actually, this is a kind of frighteningly thin group. It's, it's a little bit deeper with the additions of Jalen Polk and Giles Jackson uh, as transfers. Uh, I think there's still at this point, only seven scholarship wide receivers, uh, if you, depending on uh, how you do the math and where you slot guys in, but uh, that, that leaves, but the other side of that is almost every one of them should play. Uh, it seems like maybe Sawyer Racanelli takes a little bit of time to work his way uh, into playing time, but how would you sort out the receiver playing time? It, it, I know that this is a question that's loaded with other questions about how we line up offensively and what our personnel groupings look like, but how would you see this uh, shaking out for, you know, the majority of the snaps and who's sharing the snap counts most frequently? Yeah. I think um, like formations, notwithstanding, because uh, I don't want to talk about that and that's complicated and I want to look at things with as many controlled variables as possible. Um, I think, I think this, the receiver room is kind of interesting because Obviously, yeah, a lot of guys transfer out, and, and for the most part, it was people who were fine, but not 
not people who they, they leave and then it's cause for freak out other than Puka Nakua. But then, uh, you know, it comes like it, he, he left because his grandma's dying of cancer. And like, this is the last way that she can see him play. So I'm not going to like freak out about something about our program based on something that's like so personal and you can't put football before your family like that. So, so other than him, I I think it's interesting because obviously it's a, it's a small group, but if you look at like, if you're ranking them, I air quotes um, or rating them with some sort of quantitative metric, whatever you want to call it, goodness, uh, the per capita quote unquote goodness, good level is higher now than it was last year and the year before and the year before that. Um, it's just that we have, you know, fewer guys. Um, so, but there isn't, there's very few people of the scholarship guys anyway, other than Chavez tonight since he's a true freshman, there's very few people who that you look at and are like, I wouldn't trust you on that field. Like pretty much everybody on there is pretty interesting um, and they all have pretty different and subsequently complementary skill sets. I mean, Terrell Bynum is, until proven otherwise, I'm going to assume kind of a go-to, for lack of better words, possession receiver. Uh, Romo Dunze and Jalen McMillan, um, especially Odunze, I, w- I was forced at gunpoint by Max to rewatch the Stanford game last week, which sucked. But one of the things that I came away with it, I came away from that actually being way more optimistic about the offense. And a lot of that was Romo Dunze looked like really, considering it was he was a true freshman in his fourth career game, he looked really quite reliable in all things considered, like being thrust into that role. McMillan is also, you know, he, he looked pretty decent, again, as a true freshman who only played four games. And then when you look at, Polk and, and Jackson, like obviously Jackson can run a gazillion miles an hour. Um, and what you, if, if you, I haven't looked up his highlights from Michigan recently, but what I do remember is somebody who is uh, a smaller, not quite as crazy fast version of John Ross. Uh, Cause nobody is as crazy fast as John Ross, who isn't at the Olympics right now. So I'm kind of in the, pretty much all together. I'm kind of in this weird position of, being actually really excited to watch the receivers, but also hoping that like everyone stays healthy because if you lose one guy, because so many of them have different skill sets, it's like you still have a a handful of other dudes who can do their job well, but their job based on their skill sets is not going to be exactly the same as uh, another guy if he goes down. Yeah, I think there's a certain logic to just saying Odunze and McMillan line up at the outside because they're the best physically equipped to beat a cornerback in coverage uh, or burn down the field against a zone and, and just get into open space and keep buying them in the slot because he's this heady, uh, consistent slot receiver. But then you also have, I, I guess, like you were kind of alluding to with Jackson, and I think the same thing goes for Polk as well we have some tape on them. We haven't watched them play as much as the guys returning to the team. And we also don't know if what their, their chemistry or their usage patterns will be like, I would assume that they're able to get Jackson in the ball in different situations, sweeps and screens and things like that, just to get him in the open field. Uh, but at the same time, 
a lot of that remains to be seen. So maybe this is just lazy thinking to say these are the most recognizable archetypes for these players. So let's just put them there and then figure out the rest of it later. Maybe there's something you could do right away with Polk and Jackson that, like you were saying, they have different skill sets that can complement each other rather than just kind of following the most obvious uh, simple path. Um, let's talk a little bit about the defense. I, you know, we, there's a quarterback battle. I, I don't think there's anything to really say about that at this point. Tight ends yeah, were in no. very good shape. We have maybe I the agree. best one in the country and we don't really need to go any further than that. Uh, I'd love to spend an hour talking about our H back rotation, but uh, I, I don't think most of the world is as interested in that. Let's talk a little bit about the outside linebacker rotation. Uh, we're just talking about the the scarcity uh, at receiver. This is a different situation due to injury and uh, guys moving on, but it's it's a very important position. We got unexpected breakout from ZTF last year. Probably not going to see him at all, or maybe a little bit this year. But what do you think will be ultimately kind of like the A's and B's among the outside linebacker position once we get to uh, actual football in a month? Yeah, I'm kind of, I feel similarly about this as I do to the receivers, but like way more nervous in that there's a lot less proof in the pudding here, but theoretically high ceiling. um uh i i i think obviously you know bowman is gonna just kind of be the steady uh pillar i for lack of better words there especially with ztf down and the other guys being for the most part unproven but brimming with potential um i think braylon trice you can't you really can't talk about this or anything, honestly, about this team and this defense without mentioning Savelle Smalls. And then it, right after that, Braylon Trice, specifically because uh, Coach Lake singled out Trice to the media a handful of times during spring camp, like so emphatically. And usually I think it's it's naive. It would be naive to be like, well, Jimmy Lake mentioned him a lot, so therefore he's going to kick ass. But on the other hand, like, before spring camp, he was a guy who a lot of us, myself included, were like, I don't know, he might be a transfer candidate. Who knows if he'll see a lot. Um, and then for, for him to go from in the back of our minds, some a guy like that to like, oh, he might kick ass and he might kick ass sooner rather than later. You know, like if, for those who don't remember, Jimmy Lake referred to him as better than Joe Tryon was at this point in his development. I'm so sorry for the noise of kittens pounding on windows behind me right now. If you're hearing this, um, and, and like well, said, the kittens like, were, they heard earlier that they weren't good for an audio medium. So they yeah. were just finding a way to work their way into the podcast. Yeah. Um, and then, and then he also called, like said like, Oh, he'll be better than Joe Tryon, which is a lot like no pressure. Um, and then he also, you know, mentioned Savelle Smalls at uh, media day, and again, they're both like really young guys. I don't want to, I think as a fan, if you take a coach mentioning somebody, even if he mentions that person very emphatically um, and you go, oh, great. So he's going to break out immediately, right? Like you're setting yourself up for um, turmoil, but I am excited just to watch them just like from a development standpoint. Um, <laughs> I also think uh, um from my defensive rewatches that I did of Utah or not Utah of Stanford and Arizona, uh, Cooper McDonald was 
was he's not like physically very um like he's physically he's not a guy who you look at and you're like oh his measure measurables means he's gonna be a star but like it it is saying something to be a true freshman and come on and really not look like the 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 stage is too bright for you um which was a thing that I kind of re-remembered um especially in that Arizona game last year and then I think Jeremiah Martin I I I think I'm, I'm happy that he's here even if he his career didn't you know go as it planned at Texas A&M. Um, I'm still happy he's here simply because it, now with ZTF out and Latu medically retired, to be able to have a guy who still is a veteran presence, just as like a just to know that you have that floor, um, is that helps me breathe a little bit a little bit easier. Um, especially knowing that like yeah, his career at Texas A&M didn't go the way that he wanted, I imagine, but. Um, it's still, I mean, from what I understand, I don't watch that much Texas A&M because I don't want why, but from what I understand is that their, their scheme from um, going from Sumlin to Jimbo Fisher changed up and he kind of was a tweener for that and didn't, you know, naturally isn't, didn't work out um, for that reason, among other things. So I am, I am tentatively excited to watch these players with the caveat in the back of my head that like there will certainly be some growing pains and some really fun moments, I imagine. Um, so some high highs, some low lows. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, setting myself up for that expectation. Yeah. I think there's, I think you're exactly right that Bowman is kind of the one sure thing. And then you probably want to pair him with somebody who's a little bit more explosive, which would probably be either Trice or Smalls and maybe rotate mm-hmm. them roughly equally. And then Martin is the kind of backup stopgap sure thing, even though Definitely, he's yeah. much less of a sure thing. He also has the size that uh, Bowman has, probably not the strength, but at least physically he can put his hand on the, in the ground and, and be a little more stout against the run. If that's the direction yeah. you want to go and, and Bowman needs a rest or something like that. I think, and this is a position that's been really successful. So I think part of that is coaching some of this development, identifying the right talent. Historically, you could say the same thing about the secondary, but last year the safety play was actually kind of a, a little bit of a, a sore spot. I, I think that's probably something that would have been sorted out as the year went on. If there were, 11 or 12 games instead of four because there were so many young players kind of figuring things out uh, in a very short period of time. But that also leaves us with a lot of questions about what the playing time will look like in the secondary, definitely less uh, safety um, certainty than there has been even for returning players. Who do you think, uh, you know, kind of takes the the first reps? I think we're probably gonna see a lot of guys playing at safety, but who do you think gets the first crack at starting at safety in the fall? Yeah. Um, I think I, to me, I feel like there isn't one clear guy or two, I should say two, clear. like there've been, there's been that rotation of going back and forth between Asa Turner and Cam Williams and Alex Cook the last two years or a year and a half or whatever the hell. Um, but I, to me, it feels like, you know, Alex Cook is second string clear or, you know, at best. Um, but it feels quite clear. It really is a four-man race between Williams and Turner and then Dom Hampton and Julius Irvin. Um, Lord, if you're real, please, I want to see Dom Hampton like achieve his potential because that's scary. 
for other for other people who aren't husky fans like that i want i i want that so bad and it sounded again tentatively uh, similar to the braylon trias thing it sounded it during the spring that that was closer to it that was closer to happening than not um because and i really feel like especially with um elijah molden gone uh, at nickel that and our inside linebackers being mediocre for the last couple of years, um, especially against the run. I think having a, a guy who can be a thumper, which it sounds like he can, as Trent McDuffie put it at media days, like imagine Cam Chancellor with my speed, uh, Trent McDuffie's speed, not my own, because that would be the shittiest football <laughs> player ever. Um, that would be like Cam Chancellor now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, oof. If, if I could beat Cam Chancellor in a race now, then he should, that's uh, horrifying. Um, yeah, but yeah, so I, just hearing that, like they can't say that to fans and then be like, just kidding. I mean, they can, they totally could. And coaches do that all the time. But, but I mean, come on, you can't tell us that and then not, and then not deliver. <laughs> I want to see that so bad. Yeah, I, I was going to say the same thing. I don't really have a lot to add on Hampton. I think Irvin is, is interesting. Hampton, though, is the one where it's like you can dream on really big things happening and big things unlike what we've seen because we haven't seen somebody 6'2", 220 dominating in the secondary. Yeah, We've seen like the extremely hard hitter in Taylor Rapp. We've seen like the intuitive Buda Baker who can do a little bit of everything. We've seen kind of the, the scrappy uh, undersized guy who could just float around and is very smart, uh, you know, in combination of, of the nickel and safety spots with Miles Bryant, Elijah Molda at different times. We haven't really seen the guy who's just like so physically dominant, so fast, so big and strong, but also having the underlying skills that it just kind of like takes up the whole secondary. Yeah. So I will join you in saying I at least want to see where that goes because it's super exciting. I think that's, we, we've kind of talked to death about what the, the depth chart's going to look like at all these places. I wanted to spend a little bit of time uh, talking about recruiting and just kind of taking your temperature and just uh, kind of contextualizing this because we haven't talked a lot about 2022 recruiting. It's probably been, you know, on, on Husky internet, on social media and what have you, uh, the, the hottest topic for the last several months because there haven't been games to talk about. But there's been serious ebbs and flows uh, to how this class has gone. I feel like it started out, people were really optimistic, and then they got super pessimistic, and then they started feeling good again uh, a couple months ago, and then they started feeling really bad again, and now they're kind of getting back to somewhere in the middle. Uh, like, the, the, the tentative grades for the class have probably <laughs> ranged from, like, an A to an F to a B plus to a D minus to, you know, like, just kind of converging back towards something in the middle where it'll probably land. Uh, it seemed like the low point was a few weeks ago when there was the mass in-person uh, campus visit at the end of, uh, end of June, uh, where um, they thought they were getting commitments from a whole bunch of guys. Uh, then they didn't get either Benjamin Morrison or uh, Tafiti. They went to Notre Dame and Stanford, respectively, the uh, cornerback and uh, inside linebacker. Then also the kind of, you know, you could argue – did some unique evaluations or took commitments in strange orders from offensive linemen and then ended up seemingly with none of Agbo, Nebu, or Iuli for in-state guys. It looked, it seemed like people were very upset at that point, even though it wasn't like they were taking bad players. Stabilized a little bit lately, obviously getting Ryan Otten committed at tight end, one of the top tight end 
prospects in the country and family legacy with huge upside uh, was a big bonus. And then recently uh, the defensive back hall and, and just today uh, in-state possession receiver, Boston as uh, a second receiver commit uh, and still having a really good shot at Josh Connerly, who would kind of push all of this over the top. What does that mean overall? That's just kind of a rundown of what I think is on people's mind and trying to juggle all those balls at the same time. Like, what do you, how do you contextualize that? How do you, what conclusions do you draw from it? Um, I think my, I think it's not when, when people were getting really high about, about it. Um, I, I was preparing myself that it's probably not going to be, you know, I think people got, got a bit too high and a bit too low. Um, obviously yeah like it sucks to lose out on some of the guys we lost out on um I also and I'm also I'm not going to pretend to be one of those people that's like stars don't matter Steve Edmund was a two-star like because on a macro scale like yeah recruiting rankings mean something um that being said I also think if it would be naive to think like back when Peterson deuced out and Jimmy took over uh, Jimmy we're on first name basis now I feel like a lot of people were like oh Jimmy's this great recruiter like he's gonna he's gonna be aggressive like Pete never was and I think that was I think I think that was short-sighted uh or or I guess you could just say naive again um and is also kind of the source uh to an extent of like the Twitter slash message board recruiting meltdown from some fans um I like obviously he wasn't going to be as good Pete is a legendary like coach who's not only was is one of the most successful of the last many many years you know decades but also like had a very had a sales pitch I use that loosely that like really really worked and he was like he as a person was a part of that and I think of course Jimmy like like he even no matter how good of a position recruiter he was like of course there's going to be somewhat of a drop-off because he isn't a proven generational coach (laughs) so I mean I I think it's totally fair we also know like from the past that he has been a really great recruiter um at at his position and i think it's fair to to question like the success of of some of our like position recruiters um like for example dbs i know people have uh, complained to an extent about like uh, will harris um and the db in the db stuff and like but given the insane circumstances of the last since a month two months after he took over the job um and four game season and everything. I, I think I personally, like, I, I like controlling variables before you, you can make a definitive call on like evaluating whether someone or something is really good or really bad. I think the truth is probably somewhat in the middle. Like, I don't, I don't think stuff is going as terribly as some people feel it is. I also think that people who go, Oh, it doesn't matter. Recruiting is all a scam, blah, blah, blah. Like they're wrong too. (laughs) Um, 
but but I think and and I think it's fair to say that some position you know some position coaches when it comes to recruiting like yeah I need to step up um but we we also know that some schools were cheating and like and you know I don't want to be uh, that I don't want to be naive and be like and we're perfect and we've never cheated ever but like you know sometimes you have a disadvantage um so I I think that there's just a lot more to happen before personally I feel like I can make a definitive judgment call on um you know on coach Lake as a recruiter as a head coach recruiter and many members you know just the, just the whole program in general um yeah. I think yeah. that's fair. I think there's, I, I agree with you. I, I think that's all true. I, 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 what I, I think there are positive and negative ways to frame what we've seen so far. Totally. Like yeah. If you want to look at some of the negative things, there have been a few cases where it, it seemed like, you know, Tafiti and Morrison are probably the, the top of that category. And I think you saw a little bit of this last year with somebody like Troy Franklin, where it, it really seemed like they were on their way to UW and then, it didn't work out. Although, you know, nobody signed a letter of intent this year. We'll see if something changes for either of those guys. But uh, when, when you have a top choice and you pursue him to the end and it seems like you're winning, although we don't really know if we were ever winning in those cases, but you know, from the best information we have that we were on the path to getting the commitment and then didn't get him. That is troubling. You you identify somebody as your top choice and it, you have advantages and you can't take advantage of them. That's a problem. On the other hand, when you look at you know where we are overall, I think people are getting hung up a little bit on the fact that our like overall class rank is in the 40s right now, which looks bad. Uh, most of that is because this is a small class. Uh, some of that has to do with just the, the size of the different classes when guys have gone pro, who's stuck around to play an extra year. It's a smaller class. If you go by average rating of the, the guys that we do have committed, uh, it's, it's probably somewhere in the low to mid-20s, which is very respectable. Notably, we're at an average class ranking of 0.8835. We had two, that, which is, was very consistent with what most of Peterson's recruiting classes looked like. There were two in 2019 and 2020 that nosed above 0.9, and those were kind of those elite classes. And we are hopefully going to see the benefit of that this year and next year, because those are the guys who are now becoming upperclassmen and going to get a lot of the playing time. But the, I said 0.8835 is the average rating so far. 0.8845 was the ranking in 2017, which was Peterson's second full class. Uh, Here are some of the guys in that class. Uh, Savan Ahmed, Hunter Bryant, Elijah Molden, Henry Banavalu, Terrell Bynum, uh, Keith Taylor. And then you go down the list, to players who were not highly recruited, or at least were not rated anywhere near, you know, like the top 300, Jackson Kirkland, Kate Otten, uh, Joe Tryon. So I think if there is an ability to identify and develop talent, uh, a lot of the same coaches from that staff are still in place. It's going to take a little bit of time to build relationship, relationships with the top players. Like you said, he like hasn't built the equity or the reputation that Peterson did. I do think we're at kind of an inflection point. What they do on the field this year is going to matter a lot. And that's how you earn a reputation and going three and one in a not season isn't really a mark for or against him, but it just leaves a big incomplete next to his name. 
And this is the year. I mean, everything is set up for them to win double digit games. And if he does that, I think we're not talking about, you know, is this a class that can, can we like squint and find an optimistic view of this that gets us into the top 20 nationally or something like that, but they have to actually do it. And, and they have time to build the relationships. That's where you control for the variables you were talking about, but you have to prove yourself that you have that equity as a coach. Yeah. I, I think, I think you did make a good point though. Also. Yeah. That like um, it is a staff that's good from do we know from past about like, identifying talent and then developing it. I think the big thing that, that you mentioned above or before that is very true though, is when they identify that talent in like Tafiji and um, uh, Morrison and, and you know, they wanted them. And then that goes, yeah, that's like, that's the thing that, that in my mind, like if that keeps happening, like routinely, you know, keeps continuing, then, then like, and even despite winning, um, knock on wood, then yeah, then then we'll talk about that later. Yeah, exactly <laughs> but I think right. I think Anna, everything you said is something that's totally totally yes. <laughs> All right, let's take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to look through a wider lens. We're going to take a look at the college football landscape, which is a little bit different than the last time we talked. So stick around, and we will discuss conference realignment and the college football playoffs. Welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Let's talk a little bit about conference realignment. Things look strangely different with only two moves, Texas and Oklahoma announcing not even in the really near future, three, four years from now, headed to the SEC. It's kind of put the entire college football landscape into just like lit the hair on fire. Um, There are so many different scenarios that people have mentioned. There are so many different brainstorms that people have come up with. Is there anything that's caught your attention that you think makes sense just purely sounds rational for the Pac-12 or for Washington to do or to consider right now and and nothing is an is a valid answer to that question <laughs> yeah uh yeah pretty much um I think off the top of my head like I I should start out with the disclaimer like I, I could be talked into or out of anything at this point well not anything um but off the top of my head I think the thing that makes the most sense is, uh, in the words of Dwight K. Schrute, uh, an alliance, um, <laughs> which sounds like the dumbest thing ever when I say those words out of my mouth. Um, I don't think I can take anybody seriously who says the words alliance. Um, but, but yeah, I, I like I know George Klevkov uh, talked to Bowlesby, I believe the Big Twelve commissioner yesterday or two days ago or whatever about uh, a number of options, including a scheduling alliance. <laughs> I can't believe I keep saying the word alliance. <laughs> I never thought the day would come. Um, I think I think it would be by far, though, the most beneficial to be in discussion with the Big Ten about that. Um, I, I think both just because just based on how high profile, how much better of a product, sorry, Big 12, how much better of a product the Big Ten is how much and subsequently how much higher profile they are um i think it's not really a contest um not to mention just as uh, as fans like we have you know the pac-12 and the big 10 has like a century-long standing relationship um and history together um i do i do know that there's some people i've seen on twitter who like to act like they're forward thinking 
um, by saying we should just blow up and go and like the big branch should go to the big 10 or whatever. Um, I feel like that's a fair opinion to have or argument to make. Although everybody I've seen who has like made that uh, argument has been just a really pedantic douchebag about it. <laughs> like I've never seen, I've never seen anybody on Twitter make that argument without just being like a total condescending, like who gives a shit about any other school that isn't USC or Oregon or Washington or UCLA. And it's like, well, that's not, I mean, the fallout from that, sure, you could say like, that's best for making those schools money, maybe, but like, probably not. Um, I, cause I, because if you're looking at like those schools, I don't know, ditching and going to the big 10, like the big 10 isn't going to give a sh- much of a shit, I should say about them. And you're going to lose probably a lot of eyeballs from the West coast because what, like, what do, what do they, what do we matter without, like, if there's no apple cup, for example, like, or that's just an example, but I, I think it, it's, it's hard to talk about that without just sounding like maybe you're just appealing to nostalgia and tradition, but like, I don't know. I don't want to, I'd have minimal interest in college football if like my, my, I'm full, like fully being honest, like my interest in Husky football would drop significantly if we were playing, if we like dipped and joined another conference that we have no history with, that there's no, nothing there. And I think the idea of like being able to rely on like the big, the brand, if you're one of the like four biggest, you know, one of the foremost biggest brand schools of is kind of stupid (laughs) I also think the other thing is like the travel costs would be in the travel costs and the toll on the on the athletes um would be insane (laughs) like it's already the people like school athletes in the Pac-12 already travel more um than pretty much any other school other than like West Virginia maybe um that is to just not take that into consideration if you're a fan, like arguing for different solutions about like dipping out of the Pac-12 and saying, go join the Big 12 or the Big 10 or whatever, which by the way, joining the Big 12 would not be an upgrade. Um, Then it's like, okay, you're increasing a bunch of your travel expenses. You're gonna put this toll on student athletes. Um, Nice try pitching that to university presidents that are already losing money or, or financially like not, not doing super hot right now um so i just think if at at best it's a spit in the face and at worst it's not really like you haven't really thought through the economics of like if anyone here i know yeah never mind yeah (laughs) yeah i think what you said about the idea of just straight up joining the big 10 like if if the existing Big 10 schools put out a call and said, we want Oregon, Washington, USC, and UCLA or USC and Stanford or something to join the Big 10. I think you'd have to at least consider what you want as a school uh, out of your athletic department. Like, what do you want your program 
uh, to do long-term? Is the, is it about maximizing football revenue? Then it's a pretty easy decision to do that. Is it about, uh, giving yourself the best chance at making whatever the college football playoffs look like? Again, there would be a pretty strong argument for, uh, joining a conference like that to increase the exposure and things like that. Those aren't the only considerations. I think you articulated that pretty well, that there's a lot of other stuff in college sports, college football, all college sports that matters. Like rivalry games are really emotionally important in watching college sports. The, the uh, you know, being able to travel to away games matters to some people and, uh, there's something to you know something to be said for these schools having a relationship with each other and history between each other and also kind of a common bond i saw one of the funniest things i saw in in this process was a, a meme somebody made of the oklahoma state cowboy whatever he's called i don't even remember the name <laughs> yeah. of it uh with in a caption that said uh hello fellow west coast liberals yeah <laughs> but like it would be so strange. I, so with all that said, I, I wrote something a few months ago uh, when there was the, the, several of the top European soccer clubs were talking about joining a super league that they didn't have to qualify for just to generate yeah. more TV Which was revenue. a fantastic piece, by the way. Oh, thank you. Uh, yeah, but I, I was thinking about it again this week because this is the super mm-hmm. league. Like this, is, They're doing that in the SEC right now. And part, kind of the thesis of that uh, post was that we think about sports so differently in the u.s as consumers as like commercial consumers that it probably wouldn't even occur to us to stand up for what we appreciate the non-economic elements what we appreciate about the non-economic elements of the programs and that that's what's happening right now and i think the more i think through it the more that that takes priority in my mind uh the only other, so, you know, I, I have no interest in adding like the leftovers of the big 12 to yeah. our conference. If we want to set up some kind of scheduling alliance where we play teams from what's left of the big 12, whatever, like that's, that's like a shortcut to getting some non-conference games on the schedule. I'm fine with that, but that, that shouldn't be the end of the road. And, and if the answer is we're going to kind of like have a dimming national profile and it's going to be a little bit harder to get into a, get a second or third team into a college football playoff every year. I'll take it. Like I'd still rather just enjoy the games and enjoy the program and enjoy everything that is that I have emotionally invested in it. Last thought on this (laughs) is it's extremely hilarious to me and very Dickensian that the person who has like been left defending the old way of doing things in college football is named Bowlesby. <laughs> it is it made me think they should have also hired like Klavkov should have not been hired. They should have named somebody like um rivalry game ton to run the Pac-12. <laughs> like just named what they're supposed to stand for. Yes. Uh any other thoughts on that? I mean I it sounds like we're we're just kind of being like get off my lawn, but I I, I think <laughs> the way I look at it is more like what are we really trying to do? Are we just playing catch up in a game that we aren't going, we're not like economically, geographically, or culturally uh, disposed to winning? Uh, Or are we going to lean into the parts of this program that are important to us and just make sure that we preserve those? That's, that's the way that I'm evaluating it. Yeah. I think, I think you, I'm a, I'm flattered that you thought you, that you said I like articulated it well or whatever, (laughs) because I felt like I was, um, 
uh, uh, I, I agreed with what I was saying, but I felt like it was, um, it, it would sound on the receiving end like garbage. Uh, so thank you. Um, I thought, <laughs> I thought what you said was, a, is a big part of it. And I think it kind of comes back to like, what you're talking about, Amer American sports fans, a, a, I'm prefacing this with, yeah, you, you can't ignore economics, but American sports fans have and, and are so used to, like what you said, we become so like, we are simply the, merely the consumers of this product. And I think the way that it started to make us look at things that, are beyond that in college sports is like a is kind of the exemplifies that is like a little bit demented <laughs> like i know that of course you you need to have like the money to be able to fund these things but it's like i totally get if you're the big 12 what or for any any of us if you're in the big 10 or the pac 12 or the big what's left over the big 12 the what what Oklahoma and Texas did it's such a like it's such a fuck you to fans and it's such a fuck you to like the idea of like why do we do this at all yeah um and and I think I <laughs> like say what you will um say what you will about our jokes about the French surrendering but no one throws a protest like the French and I feel like for like, it's a very American thing, what we're doing now, just sitting back and taking it and being like, well, it makes, it makes like, just like justifying these universities say, just giving the middle finger to like everything that is the reason why we watch this and going like, well, you know, you have to pay attention to the, like the money and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no shit. We all know that's what we all know about the money. It doesn't, I don't care though about the product. I don't care about how much money you're making if it's just totally destroyed everything that I watch this for. Like, have some pride, goddammit. <laughs> like, I don't know. It, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's just, I really cannot emphasize enough how, how, how much my give a shit meter would go down if we're not, if, if we're, you know, I mean, we like to talk shit about like, oh, we're losing to Cal again or whatever. And, and I, you know, it's not a secret that like plenty of the Washington fan base has somewhat of a superiority com uh, complex over a lot of the Pac-12, but like, there's very few schools that I, as much as I make fun of plenty of them, there's very few that I would want to, would be like cool with not, never seeing them again. Um, I don't want to play Northwestern in the first weekend of November. And <laughs> like, I don't care if we get to play Michigan and then get our asses whooped by Ohio state um, as a reward too. Yeah. The end. Yeah. That went I, on for longer yeah. than I was expecting. So I think said we're going to, we kind of got into a little bit of the college football playoff stuff there. I think it's all tied up. I, I think, we probably don't have to go into a whole lot more depth on that uh, at this mm -hmm. point, but I, I think it, it kind of both the playoffs and the conference realignment part kind of make me think about what people have said over the last few years. Uh, so one of the things that people said about how uh, Donald Trump was different from the conservative politicians who came before him is that he said the quiet parts loud. And mm -hmm. both of these instances feel like there's kind of this open secret 
like you said, that many of the college football, you know, administrators, elites, athletic directors, whatever, uh, whoever is running these programs are, are in it to maximize revenue or in it to make as much money as possible for their programs or for themselves, but they don't say it, you know, their actions may kind of indicate that, you know, when they're firing a coach because he doesn't get along with the boosters or when they're, (laughs) you know, sneaking under the table payments to players or when they're opposing, uh, like name image and likeness or, uh, enhanced stipends for players and things like that. It kind of, implies that they're trying to hoard as much revenue for themselves as possible but this is the saying the quiet part loud version where they're just saying we have no reason to do this except that we will make more money yeah oklahoma and georgia uh are are now like bedfellows because they can marginally increase their revenue in the short term so they're just gonna do that and and it is kind of a short-term play uh it totally is yeah expanding the playoffs to water down whoever the champion is and get rid of a system that existed for a hundred years and built a bunch of history and rivalries around it. Yeah. It kind of is very prisoner's dilemma because it's like, okay, there is, there's like, depend if you're looking at money, like, yeah, there is a short-term easy thing that you can point to that go, that is definitively mm-hmm. what is best for me when it comes to, but, but what, you know what, one thing I am looking forward to, I'm sorry, um, coach Kwiatkowski, you know, when back up put a pin in that when texas hired stark my initial reaction was uh oh <laughs> and then followed by you know what well maybe he's turned it around uh i no hard feelings and then when he when they he hired kwakowski besides being sad my initial reaction was oh it really really does look like maybe he's turned it around and same thing with choke um but i really am looking forward to um, I'm really, really, really looking forward to now Texas's uh, welcome. Texas being repaid with their fuck you to, uh, and along with Oklahoma, but Texas, this will happen more in Texas. Um, I'm really looking forward to them being repaid with their giant middle finger to their conference and to college football with just a, just a bunch of ass whoopings because you know they're coming. Like, <laughs> like, <laughs> Coach K and Jeff Choate are gonna hope. Yeah, I would imagine they're gonna turn around their defense to an extent for sure. But like we all, everybody knows that the 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 elites that control Texas football, the boosters, like there's a reason. It's just so everyone meddles there, and I am. I would be sur- I wouldn't be surprised if they are marginally better under. Um, Sark simply because of having Kwiatkowski, but you cannot be marginally better and then go to the SEC and have to play Alabama and Georgia. And like, I, I have decent confidence in Florida under Dan Mullen. Um, and then in LSU, you know, hope, hopefully who knows. And then you can't get like a bit better and be, and, and, and have a better record when you go to play them instead of like, you know, the big 12. Um, that's not meant to shit on the big 12 because the big 12 is the good guys here, the remaining. but, but I'm, I'm gonna, I, I'm not going to watch it just on principle out of spite because I'm not going to give them their 0.00001 cent in ad dollars, but I will, I will check, I will check Twitter for updates, how that first sec season goes just, just like with so much schadenfreude. 
because we know what's coming. Oklahoma might be able to like take it a bit, but hmm. yeah. As long as I think I'm I'm ready to stop talking about this because me it makes too. me angry and frustrated. So let's me talk too. about uh, before we end something things that make us a little less uh, fatalistic that we can feel better about and do our uh, recommendations and plugs. Do you have anything you want to start with, or should I go first? Um, you go first. All right. Uh, this is probably something a lot of people are already familiar with, but we've been watching uh, White Lotus on HBO, which is a very weird miniseries about a bunch of families and people vacationing at the same uh, resort in Hawaii. I, I heard that it was done with this conceit because that was a really easy way to shoot something on a very closed environment during COVID where the actors and crew didn't have to be exposed to anyone else. And it's just a weird show where everyone kind of makes the worst decision possible at every turn and it, everything gets worse and worse but it does result in some very funny moments like very dark comedy it's it's not the greatest tv show i've ever watched but it is like kind of it, it pulls you in and, and it makes you very interested in it because it's just so strange and so uncomfortable so if you're into that sort of like cringe uh television it's it's well made and it's good to look at as like something in hawaii and it's beautiful uh but it's also like makes you deeply uncomfortable for most of the time i uh yeah i don't know if i have the bandwidth i don't know if i have the bandwidth to be more uncomfortable than i am like most of the time it's not like uh, depressing or like makes you want to like make you angry it's just awkward that's probably a better word you're just like oh god why don't they just not do that this is such a bad decision stop it yeah um is that do you have any others or is that your last one no that's that's all i got for today okay mine you know what i have two one is one is a show one is just a concept um which i have done before the first one like I've said for the last couple episodes, uh, I do not have the emotional bandwidth to watch mostly anything that isn't public TV right now. So, but there, uh, one one show that I discovered a couple months ago is called Somewhere South. It is um, uh, hosted by a chef named Vivian something, um, who's uh, from North Carolina, I think. And she pretty much just goes like every episode. It's like an, I think it's an hour long, and every episode is themed around different food. So one is like hand pies, and one is dumplings. Um, and uh, it's I, I she you know goes around all all of the South, um, and every episode she'll be in a bunch of different places um, just to look at like kind of everything about that. And like the dumpling episode, the, it was the purpose of the purpose quote unquote of the episode was to answer the question what the f- is a dumpling <laughs> um minus the expletive colin why don't you bleep that out a good bleep is kind of funny um and one thing i just really like about it is like i feel like a lot of depictions of the south are very simplistic and black and white and like when you when i feel like shows that are about food in the south it's all like they have fried chicken and like barbecue and whatever um but i i once yeah but i just really appreciate that like a lot of that show a lot of what it does is like looks at like all the ass like all the different people that are in the south not just like white people and black people like there's a lot of different 
groups that are not really talked about because they don't fit into that. Um, and a lot of different foods that like don't fit into that stereotype. Um, and so I think it, it just is a much more fair approach to a region that is often caricatured. And I know I'm, I'm not Southern. I'm like a sixth generation Washingtonian. I have no place to talk about this, but I think that's part of why I appreciated it is because like, I don't know, because the media like portrayals and shows and whether that's cooking or history or whatever is like, so uh, what kind of one dimensional. And then also my, oh, I was going to do plug another, another concept which is a stupid sentence, but instead, because this fits in with that, uh, I will plug. Um, if you are in the Carolinas, I will also be there the week, weekend, whatever, of September 7th through 11th or whatever, 12th maybe, um, for the Queen City Comedy Festival in Charlotte. I'm excited because I have never been, and uh, the head, there will be I think I'm on two shows there. Um, the headliners are like Colin Mockery and David Kegner and Nikki Glaser and I think Steve-O for some reason. Um, so that'll be fun. Um, so I, I come to that. If you're one of, maybe we have one listener in the Carolinas. And honestly, I love that idea just because it's random as shit. Um, I mean, if you're listening to this and you're in Charlotte, it's kind of an obligation. If you're listening to this and yeah. you're in Charlotte and you don't come, first off, up yours. <laughs> um, yeah, no. Um, yeah, that's going to be fun because I haven't done, well, other than two uh, mics uh, at, at the time of this airing, I hadn't done stand-up in a year and a half because of the pandemic. So I got to get those muscles working again, which is fun and a little bit frightening um, because that is the longest break I have ever taken and it's not even close. My last plug, which was the quote unquote concept is um, I'm sure most, if not all of the people who listen to this are bona fide adults. Um, I have, I think that as a human adult, which I am barely one, um, I feel like we often forget that you can learn new things. And I, like I've been playing hockey the last couple of years and damn it, if it isn't just fun to like have something that you enjoy for the sake of it and like that you get to work to be better at. Cause you know, that feeling when you're a kid and like you, whether it was a sport or some activity or whatever, like the feeling of getting better and just being able to enjoy something for its own sake, instead of like, I don't know. I feel like it used in, when you're like a kid playing sports, there's like all that pressure to like, you have to get better by the, and you have to like reach this threshold at a certain age or else you'll suck and won't be able to play again or something. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I don't, I, I, um, like, I don't know, to this morning, I had like a clicking moment with backwards crossovers, which is really dorky to be excited about that. And I'm not even excited about it, but dang it, it is genuinely fulfilling just to have something that you're like, I enjoy this for no other reason than I enjoy it. There is no pressure. There is no nothing. Um, so if you're listening to this and you have like, I don't know, a sport or any activity that you felt like, hey, that looks like fun, go do it because you deserve it. And 
you deserve to like have a thing for yourself. So I just wanted to put that out there because uh, if you're not going to plug a concept, then what, <laughs> what else are you going to do? Amen. I got yeah. to start playing basketball again two weeks ago. Yeah. So I, I'm with so you on fun. that. It's so much better. Adults than... need to have fun too. Yeah. All right. I think that does it. We've covered everything imaginable. Let's yeah. uh, wrap up now and remember to come back next time. We will probably be back sooner than the last time we recorded yeah. since we're so much closer to football now. And hopefully if everything goes according to plan, when we are back, we will be joined by Cody Pickett himself. We're getting oh, ever closer maybe. to that date. So stick around for that and go dogs. Go dogs indeed. And if you're still recording this, Colin, I'm sorry for the ranting.